I have faith. <laughs> All right. Excellent. Um, right, so well, uh, thank you so much for, for having me here. Thank you so much for uh, arriving in such sort of great multitudes. Um, so the first sort of health warning is that I am not uh, an, an, a political activist. I'm not any kind of campaigner. I'm uh, an Egyptologist. I work with ancient Egyptian material. Um, but of course, I do wish uh, modern Egypt all the very best, and I am deeply concerned by what's going on in that country and has been going on uh, under various leaders for uh, quite a long time. So uh, building on the uh, policy uh, paper, which I uh, co-wrote with, with Dr. Andrew Blick a short while ago, um, I just want to offer some thoughts uh, on what's happening there at the moment and how we might like to look at the past and see if there's something we can learn. So really, there are two issues that I want to explore over the course of this talk. The first of them actually is this idea of what is Egyptian culture and the misconceptions which I think have grown up around it. And secondly, I want to go back to this idea, and I know there's been a lot written on it, obviously, but what is democracy and what might democracy be in an Egyptian setting? Um, because my concern is that at the moment, we have a country that is claiming to be democratic and has been claiming for to be so for quite a long time. And it certainly is a country very rich in elections and voting and constitutions and all these things. And I'm not really sure that those are doing it a ton of good in, in their present form. So in terms of a bit of historical background, I just want to read you a quote uh, from H.I. Bell, who was a very uh, famous curator at the British Museum, who uh, thought a lot about uh, ancient Egyptian culture and its relations or, or lack of it to, to Egypt more recently. And he wrote, in this new world of dogmatism and religious bigotry, Christian or Mohammedan, there was no room left for the clear-eyed sanity of Hellas. Egypt had become once more a part of that oriental world from which the fiery genius of Alexander had separated her for a thousand years. Now, I would think most of us uh, here today probably would not, would like to think of ourselves as not fully agreeing with those sentiments. We might think them a little illiberal. We might even think that they're somewhat colonial. Um, or certainly kind of Eurocentric, Greco-centric. Uh, but uh, I would argue that a lot of this approach fundamentally still holds true in our approach to Egypt today. So essentially what H.I. Uh, Bell was saying uh, was that you have uh, ancient Egyptian, the ancient Egyptian world, which is in its own way very beautiful and, inter and interesting, but it, it didn't really uh, give us very much. Um, and then we had the Greeks who came along and uh, with their clear-eyed sanity, uh, put the country on, on the road to something much better. Um, and after the Greeks left, well, Egypt just it, it went back to, to being Egypt, and all the sort of elements of progress are being got, got swept away, and it's a, a bit of a basket case. Um, and I think with what has, with a lot of the efforts to uh, create. Uh, 
democracy in Egypt, what we're seeing there is uh, fundamentally attempts that are uh, based on the Greek model and which are still based on the, on the belief that that Greek model uh, is really the way that democracy should work and fundamentally the way that countries should be run. And that we, as a, you know, as a liberal Western society, uh, on the whole, know best uh, how these people should go about um, running their country. And I say this as somebody who would dearly love to see uh, democracy installed in Egypt. I'm not saying this as someone who wants to, you know, to undermine uh, the, the democracy promo promotion movement in any way. I'm just saying it um, as someone who wants it done in a way that is more appreciative of the realities of Egyptian culture in the long term. Now, what are these realities of Egyptian culture? Well, I think many of us take it as a given that Egyptian culture is Islamic, that it is on the whole divorced uh, from ancient Egypt, that you've got the pyramids and you've got hieroglyphs and papyri and all the rest of it, and they're still there, uh, but that fundamentally modern Egyptians don't have an awful lot to do uh, with that tradition. And in fact, we can see that very well in uh, the state of academic Egyptology today, where uh, all the sites are in Egypt, but the number of professionals working with ancient Egyptian material is absolutely tiny. You'll find more Egyptologists um, in Berlin or in Chicago than you will in Cairo. Um, and the last point that Egypt is undemocratic and doesn't really have either a, a, a tradition of democracy in the past uh, or uh, a framework with which it can be successfully developed in, in the present and in the future. Um, I would like to challenge that and say that actually when we think of Egyptian culture to this day, we should be thinking of it as something much more multi-religious and uh, a society in which multiple religions are alive to this day. A uh, culture which is actually very strongly connected to the ancient Egyptian tradition uh, even if we don't think it is, and for that matter, even if many modern Egyptians don't think it is and don't realize that it is. And also a culture that is very rich in popular participation and in ways of uh, creating accountability for uh, both local and ultimately central government too. Those ways might not be along the lines of a Greek-style democracy as, as we would see it, but they do have large elements of, of popular sovereignty that, that I think we should think about and try to tap into uh, if we can. So in terms of just the materials that uh, I, I'm using, I mean, I, I know people probably don't want a lengthy bibliography of this kind of stuff, uh, but uh, much, of the, uh, much of the material comes from letters of, yes, colonialists, uh, of, of the 19th century, uh, people who were uh, traveling in Egypt uh, and who were, who were seeing things, uh, who were making comments on how society was run in uh, the villages at, at a local level. So people like E.W. Lane, um, Lucy Dove Gordon uh, were essentially part of a, a grand tour tradition of Egypt, if you like, and they would uh, go to these local areas and they would say, hmm, well, you know, how, how curious. 
these people have a court. They have a notion of justice. Isn't that funny? Um, but uh, I, I find that actually, if you if you read these these sorts of papers, you do you do get an insight into certainly how in the 19th century the the, the country was, was operating, um, and that carries on into into the 20th century with people like Blackman and indeed Satin uh, much more recently. And through these sorts of accounts, what I've been able to see, uh, and I, I mean these are obviously not the only ones, is that at a local level, if you take things out of Cairo, if you take them out of the, the big cities, where obviously there is a much uh, you know, greater uh, element of, uh, you know, of, of industry, of technological development, of uh, international cosmopolitan culture, what you will see is that there are many traditions that have stayed remarkably constant over very, very long periods of time. Just to give you a few, uh, so this is, I think, from, the, from Lucy Dove Gordon's uh, volume. This is a hegab, which is uh, essentially an Egyptian amulet. Uh, it's, it's hung on the neck. And these were certainly in use in the 20th century, and I would, I would think are still in use today in, in rural areas of Egypt, although not an awful lot of work is being done on them. Um, and they, they contain, uh, the, these amulets contain short inscriptions from the Quran, short Quranic texts. So what we have here is something which is a, you know, a Muslim object, if you like, but it's being used as an amulet very much in, in a, a pre-Muslim tradition, in a sort of way that would have been very easily understood to the ancient Egyptians, actually. You carry on wearing these things around your neck because you think that the Quran, uh, this has some sort of magic in it that is going to, to protect you. That mentality is still there. Um, this I, quite, this I quite like. This is from the, the Blackman uh, publication, 1927. You've got people uh, conducting divination uh, on, the, on the Quran. So what you would do is you would suspend the Quran on a string, and the Quran would swing, and you would ask it a question. And depending on the direction in which the Quran swung, you would be able to identify thieves. You would be able to. Uh, work out whether or not you should marry off your daughter to a, a, a particular man, uh, all kinds of things, which is exactly what was being practiced in ancient Egypt in the second millennium BC. Now, it's been framed in terms of you know, Muslim practice, and the people who carry out these sorts of procedures certainly would consider themselves to be Muslim, in fact, very devout Muslim, but, and probably wouldn't accept that they were engaging in an ancient Egyptian practice. But the reality is that, that they are. Um, and I would find it very difficult uh, to, you know, to come up with an alternative as to how this, this could come about, if not a continuation of uh, ancient Egyptian practice. Again, um, this issue of sacred trees. Uh, so Vivant Denon from 1803 writes, there are certain stones and trees which conceal a good or bad genius and thus become sacred, and cannot be removed without profanation. To these, domestic secrets and projects of various kinds are entrusted in confidence, whilst they are worshipped with mysterious secrecy but revered in public." Again, framed in a very, uh, very Muslim tradition, 
But when we look at what, would ha what was happening in ancient Egypt, you've got the cult of the tree uh, going back into the second millennium, if not earlier, quite possibly into the third. We can talk about saints or you know, venerable figures who are very big uh, in, in ancient Egypt, people like uh, Imhotep, the, the great uh, sort of legendary builder of the, the pyramids. Um, in the ancient Egyptian tradition, you would worship them, you would consider them almost uh, <clears throat> demigods, people with real uh, power over your daily life and with an ability to uh, influence what, what, you, what you could be up to. In Islam, of course, in pure Islamic theology, you shouldn't really have multiple gods. And yet, again, Denon tells us, they have their peculiar saints to whom they do not indeed assign a separate place in their paradise, um, where everything is in common, but to whom they raise tombs and whose ashes they revere. So you've actually got you know, material relics uh, of these, these figures, many of whom I should point out were not even Muslim when they were alive and who might have been based in, might be connected to ancient Egyptian tombs, for example, um, who were being worshipped and, and revered. And I have no reason to actually doubt the, you know, the authenticity of the account of someone like Denon, uh, who would, yes, he for sure would be looking at this from the point of view of colonial curiosity, but he was noting more or less what he was seeing. Um, and in a sense, he was doing a lot more than uh, what many modern uh, scholars do, which is fundamentally ignore uh, the village lifestyle of rural Egyptians and, and to, just, to just write nothing about them at all. So I think his work is very useful. Uh, this uh, is an example of you know, one such uh, saint. This is you know, Imhotep, who I think most of us would agree looks, looks fairly ancient Egyptian. Um, this is actually an ancient Egyptian rendering of him, but cults of people such as him were carrying on into, uh, into the modern age. Um, again, this is quite interesting, the idea of healing. He told me how someone down the river cured his cattle with water poured over a mushaf, a copy of the Quran. So what you're doing is you pour water over the Quran, you then drink that water, and the magic of the water uh, heals you because the, it's imbued with Quranic magic and it makes you better and it make, can make your cattle better as well. Not really uh, in line with Islamic theology, but in ancient Egypt, you have stele. I mean, this is Horus on the crocodiles from about 800 BC. You pour water over the stela, it uh, sucks up the magic from the hieroglyphs in the stela, you drink the water, you become better. The concept has lived on. And uh, I could go on with these religious examples, but I, I'm not going to. All I'm trying to do is to say that there are these uh, carryovers in very many different walks of life that show that this idea that the ancient Egyptian tradition and the more recent Egyptian tradition are uh, you know, divided and uh, you know, not part of one whole um, as uh, you know, that the, the, they're not uh, essentially split up by the clear right san sanity of Hellas and uh, left to sort of to, to fester on the outskirts. These are things which are still alive. Um, in matters of justice, which is actually my own narrow field within Egyptology, we see this uh, almost more strongly than in any other. So H.H. H. Smith, uh, 
actually 1970, so this is, this is recent, is writing that for the villager, many matters within the sphere of the law long remained of a purely private family or village concern. That you haven't got a system of state-run courts in Egyptian village society in the second half of the 20th century. And in fact, you still don't have a system of state-run courts in these local areas today. Uh, very many disputes are still settled along uh, these sorts of, of uh, lines of, of clan or, or kin or agricultural community, things like that. Um, and this idea of having local, uh, local judicial representation and local resolution of disputes with courts that are essentially made up of uh, individuals selected by the community goes back certainly to the Middle Kingdom, uh, if not before. This is from about uh, 1400, 1500 BC. You've got uh, a villager being beaten up for not paying tax. The community have uh, come to that decision, and they're beating him up in quite an organized way, actually. Um, and this is then being put on a tomb as a sign of you know, good uh, rightful behavior, you know, what we it's should be. It's on social media today, isn't it? Oh, uh, well, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it, it, in, if only they had it, yes. <laughs> if only, if only. Maybe Egypt would still be going strong. Um, and this link of this business of justice uh, brings me to something I think maybe more fundamental about accountability and ancient Egyptian ideas about accountability and the contribution local people could make to government. And this is a contribution which I think has become ignored in uh, certainly in the modern Egyptian uh, way of doing things and which is very poorly uh, understood and very poorly known uh, among Western promoters of democracy too. If we look at the duties of the vizier from about 1400 BC, which is a text uh, essentially about how to run government uh, in the ancient Egyptian setting, we have this. Now, as for any investigator the vizier sends concerning any petitioner, he should permit access to him. Now, as for anyone petitioning the vizier concerning fields, he is to order him to come to him in addition to hearing by the overseer of fields and the board of the register. We have a clear idea of due process. Um, if petitions are brought to local government, these petitions have to be heard and they have to be acted on. Now, they might not be acted on in a way that will ultimately satisfy the petitioner, but you know, there is a board of the register, there's an overseer of fields, there's a process that these petitions have to go through. And the vizier, as head of government under the pharaoh, ultimately is responsible for making sure that that process is carried out. Now, the people certainly didn't have power to remove a vizier. You know, they couldn't no confidence him or anything like that. But there was an idea of accountability that things had to be done. And I don't think there is that now, actually. Um, again, instructions of Ptah Hotep, another text on Egyptian ideas of government. If you are one to whom petition is made, be receptive as you listen to the speech of a petitioner. Let him not hesitate to unburden himself of that which he has brought to tell you, but seek to remove his injury, seek to do stuff. Let him speak freely so that the matter for which he has come to you may be resolved. 
we've actually got the idea of free speech here, I think. Um, you might not be able to remove your government or replace it, but you're certainly free to, to criticize it, and you're free to uh, point things out that are not, not going to plan and that are not going well. And I think if we look at the current Egyptian system, I mean, that, that is definitely not the case. If you start critici criticizing the al-Sisi regime very quickly, I think you'll end up somewhere not very nice. Um, so this uh, brings us onto, I think, wider issues of the government and accountability. Yes, ancient Egypt was uh, a theocracy. Uh, it was run by the pharaoh in his capacity as a god uh, and as the high priest of every cult whose word technically was law. And I'm not in any way suggesting that that is a part uh, of ancient Egyptian politics that we should try to recreate. Um, the vizier was appointed uh, by pharaonic decree and without any need for consultation. But uh, while that may have been the practical, well, well at least the, the, you know, the model for government, uh, a divinely ordained government, the reality was somewhat different. Ordinary people had the capacity to form local councils, the kenbet, uh, where justice could be done, uh, where administrative decisions on how land uh, was farmed could be made, and where petitions could be heard. These petitions could then be taken to provincial mayors across the 42 administrative divisions of ancient Egypt, and ultimately could be taken higher up to the vizier, or in certain cases they could even reach the pharaoh. And there are instances of that happening. So while the, the theocratic element is what we uh, in our Western society today are probably most familiar with, because that's what links up to the pyramids and the, uh, the, the tombs and Tutankhamun and all that, the king as a god, what we know much less of is the responsibility that the government had to the people. And that was a responsibility that the government recognized, as we can see through the wisdom texts that I was quoting earlier. And in fact, if you were not a, a particularly good pharaoh or a particularly good vizier, uh, and you were not listening to these, uh, to these petitions, and you were not behaving in line with what was expected of you by society, there was every chance that you could be removed. Um, in the New Kingdom, we have uh, for example, the, the case of Ramses III, who was almost certainly murdered. Um, you've got uh, three uh, changes in the structure of the ancient Egyptian state. Uh, you know, after the collapse of the Old Kingdom, the collapse of the Middle Kingdom, the collapse of the New Kingdom, when the pharaonic system itself gets, gets brushed away and replaced by decentralized administration, uh, because uh, the country essentially isn't happy with how pharaohs are, are running the land. Um, and you've got many more examples of uh, lower level officials being replaced uh, by, by the higher power because they're seen as not, as not doing their, their job in, in helping the, the local communities. Am I saying that this system was perfect? Well, no, of course I'm not. It's flawed in very many ways. Am I suggesting that that system uh, should be replicated in Egypt today, well, no, I'm not. Uh, but what I am suggesting is that there are aspects of it which we should be familiar with and which we should try to engage with. As Anhtifi of Mo'ala uh, summarizes in his tomb, 
Uh, my barley went upstream until it reached Lower Nubia, downstream until it reached the Aberdeen Nome. All of Upper Egypt was dying of hunger and people were eating their children. But I did not allow anyone to die of hunger in this Nome, in my area. I cared about it. I had a responsibility to these people, and I did what was right for them, even if there were cannibals running amok uh, all around the borders of my little administrative area. And with Anthony Fee, for example, what, what you get is a real sense that if he were not doing his job properly, his people would not have a responsibility to, you know, to keep his tomb uh, in its place after his death even. And in fact, he himself would probably think that it would be very difficult for him to uh, get access to the afterlife if he, as the local administrator, had not done his job. So in terms of some overall features of ancient Egyptian government, and I'm, I'm close to the end now, um, I want to stress local decision making. I want to stress the right to petition local authorities without fear of hurt and with the knowledge that the petitions would be listened to. I want to stress the existence of at least a rudimentary form of due process and accountability, governors feeling the need uh, to actually justify their actions and indeed justify their presence, why it is that they're even there. And from this point on, I just really want to suggest that in an Egyptian context, we might need to think about redefining democracy and what democracy means for a country like Egypt. Democracy obviously is a Greek word, and the way we think of it is very much along Greek lines. But ultimately, we have to remember that it means people power, and it does not necessarily mean a ballot box every four years. We've come to a succession of presidents in Egypt who are very happy with the ballot box every four years approach. Um, you can rig it. Um, they're very good at that. Um, very often, in fact, you don't even have to rig it because you've got control of the state media, which is very, very powerful. Um, and you're going to get 90% uh, of the vote probably just using that. Certainly, that, that's what Hosni Mubarak kept doing. Um, even if you do manage to have a revolution like the one in 2011, there's nothing to subsequently stop the military from uh, coming in, uh, holding a coup, and rerunning an election if that election hadn't produced the result that they wanted. Um, and you have a society which fundamentally does not understand uh, the party political uh, models and the representative democracy which characterizes the world that we live in today. And yet, we carry on uh, to, that, to promote that model uh, in that part of the world because that's, I think, ultimately what we are comfortable with. There's also, of course, a big discourse about colonialism here, because what these people would say is that this is going back uh, to the original quote by H.I. Bell about uh, the bright-eyed sanity of Hellas. Look, guys, um, how about you stop playing around with your own models of political thinking? Here's a political idea from Greece, which is just so much better. How about you just use that? So uh, I, I mean, I'm. <laughs> be presumptuous of me to you know, propose a solution. I'm not. But I would encourage uh, all stakeholders in this area to think about actually harnessing Egyptian pride in their ancient political heritage, which is incredibly rich, rather than just accepting that this ancient political heritage is divorced 
from the political and cultural reality of Egypt today and therefore should be at worst forgotten or at best played into, placed in the museum next to the Tutankhamun display. Ancient Egypt still remains for the Egyptians themselves a symbol of modern Egypt. You know, we, we see it on the Al Misriya logo. Uh, if you watch TV in Egypt, you've got the pyramid there. Uh, if you live in Cairo, you're living in the shadow of the pyramids. It's all still there. It's acknowledged uh, by the, the finance ministry as being absolutely vital to how the country is, is run to this day by contributing to something like 10% of the economy through, through tourism. So I think to say that there are aspects of ancient Egyptian governance that could be harnessed today is not would not be seen as entirely mad. That model does still continue to have legitimacy in ancient Egypt, in modern Egypt. The, I'm not saying ancient Egyptian governance does, but ancient Egypt itself as a concept still carries certain weight. And yet people have simply never looked at it as a potential source of ideas for, for government. People are simply still saying, well, ancient Egypt, no government, pharaohs, autocracy, gods, how could this possibly be relevant to the world today? Well, I think that when the world today is a world where you can't petition freely, where uh, local administrators don't have uh, any accountability to their local communities, and when there still uh, isn't any success at a democratic process on a national level, in those circumstances, I think we can certainly look at some of these ideas and see if we can come up with something better. Um, that's enough from me. Thanks for having me, and I hope we can have a discussion now.